Thanks, Josh. How are you doing this morning, Woodland Hills? Hello, Pod listeners. It's Super Sunday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, how many, how many uh, 49ers fans do we have in here? How many uh, Chief fans do we have in here? Woo! How many don't give a rip? <laughs> the Vikings aren't in it. Who cares? Uh, yeah. It's a good time to get away. So this movie, uh, Jesus Ah, uh, J-E-S-U, well, it's like back in my Pentecostal days, we always put a, you know you're anointed when there's an ah that comes after the word. Like, I'm going to tell you about God and Jesus and the Lord will have you know today. And so that's how you know you're getting anointed. So Jesus is a great anointed movie about Jesus. Actually, it's, 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 if you ever have this experience where you're listening to the news or something and you hear about the Christians and how they vote and how they do this and how they do that, whatever, and you feel like you want to become a Buddhist or you just don't feel like you're part of that tribe, uh, this is a movie for you. How did the church in America get so embedded in the culture that in the name of the one who taught us to throw off all violence, Christians tend to be the number one gun advocates uh, in, in America? Plenty of churches in the South who, they, they encourage their people to pack when they come to church. Because everyone knows that the more guns we have, the safer we are. That's so what Jesus would do, right? Before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, make sure you're carrying, right? Uh, you, you're packing, all right? So, uh, of course, what happened when Peter tried to use that? It didn't work that well, did he? He kind of rebuked him. But anyways, let's not cut it up in details. So, uh, if you're wondering about that whole thing, how the, how the church got co-opted into American culture, the individualism, the violence of the culture, and all the rest, this is a movie that you want to see. So, come on out here, and I think it'll be informative and... Uh, Interesting and discussion worthy. So we're here talking about a uh, God talking to us. A series called Listen Up. Everybody knows, if, if, if you're a believer at all, you, you know that you're supposed to talk to God. You're supposed to pray, right? But what a lot of people don't know, or if they do know it, they don't practice it. And, and that's that God wants to talk to us. Uh, God is a relational God. God's very being is relationship. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And, and, and it's the kind of love that's revealed on the cross. God is triune love, cross-like triune love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And relationships are all about communication. If you're in a relationship with somebody, then who you are is being communicated to them, and who they are is being communicated to you. That's what a relationship is. So God's a communicating being. So God creates human beings because God wants to share himself with us and wants us to share ourselves with him. God wants a relationship with us, which means God wants to communicate with us. Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17 that God has from the very beginning, from the beginning of human history, been working in the rising and the falling of human empires. And he's been working to, in every single human heart, to try to get that heart to search for him, to hunger for him, and possibly even find him. Insofar as the culture would allow God to be found in a real way there, God's working in everyone's heart to get them to hunger for God and to find God as much as possible, as much as that culture and all the other variables will allow it. God's active in every human heart because God loves every person God's ever created and wants a relationship with every human being God's ever created. So God's working in all hearts throughout history. And where it's possible, God then wants to bring people into a loving relationship with himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's when this Holy Spirit begins to grab the heart and when the conditions allow for it to bring them into a knowledge of the gospel about who God really is and what God's done to reconcile us and the whole creation to himself. God wants to speak to us. But what we saw last week in the beginning of the series is that the place where that communication ordinarily happens is in what we today call our imagination. 
Uh, all throughout history, people have, have, have seen this. It was a, it's the common wisdom up until recently in the secular West. But human beings have understood that the imagination, our mind's capacity to experience and entertain images, that's all the imagination is, their image-making capacity, that it's not that it is there to help us be creative and, and problem-solve, but it's also there, it exists as the portal by which we intersect with the spiritual realm. Throughout all of history, everyone understood that this is where you talk to God or talk to the gods and have visitation of angels and, and all the rest. It happens in the imagination. And this is true of people in biblical times as it is in people outside of, uh, of the biblical tradition. In, in, in the biblical tradition and throughout the church tradition, this is called cataphatic prayer. Cataphatic, it means praying with images where you pay special attention to what's going on in your imagination, cataphatic prayer. I have a book on this called Seeing is Believing. Uh, if you want to go in deeper into it, uh, it's out in the gathering area. So it, it takes place in our imagination. Now, what's challenging to us is that because we're part of the secular West, we've been conditioned not to trust our imagination. We've been conditioned because of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution to just entrust empirical facts, things that we can touch, taste, see, feel, things that are, 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 are open to investigation by our, sense, our five senses. And imagination just seems so subjective. God talks to us through our imagination. It raises all sorts of questions to us that it wouldn't necessarily raise to people in the ancient world, not as intensely anyways. Like, if, if God talks to me through my imagination, well, then how do I know that it's really God talking to me? Maybe it's just my imagination. Is that you, God, or is that me? Is that you, God, or maybe it's just uh, my wishful thinking. Maybe it's my confirmation bias. Maybe I'm just thinking this because this is what I want to think. Maybe it's just the power of suggestion. Maybe it's the pastrami I ate last night. Is this you, God, or is this me? Raises all these questions. And I know that there's a lot of people on the planet who think they hear from God, and they drive airplanes into skyscrapers. And I don't think that they're right, but if they're sincere, I'm sure they think they hear from God. So if they're wrong and they're sincere, maybe even though I'm sincere, I could be wrong. We have all these questions that get us knotted up. And, and those questions, if, if, if we're not careful, those questions can freeze us. They can neutralize us. They can take us out of the whole, take us out of the possibility of hearing from God. If you're perpetually worried about, is this God or is it not? Is it me? Is it, you know, it could be this, could that, could be the pastrami. If, if that's where your mind is, you're not going to hear from God. And if you hear from God, you're not going to recognize as God. And you're not going to be obeying God. You're not going to be walking in the Spirit. Now, I want to read a passage of Scripture here. In fact, the, the, most of my message is going to be dealt with one passage of Scripture. It's an extremely important passage of Scripture. I know I say that about every passage I preach because as I'm preaching it, it feels like the most important passage in the world while I'm preaching it. But this time, I really mean it. This is the most important passage in the world. And it gets into this whole thing about our, our tendency to be obsessed with questions and, and how that can negate things. It, it has to do with the, the, the distinction between the spirit and the letter. The, the letter of the law which brings death and the spirit which brings life. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. And so I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What is particularly important about this passage is that it's the central passage that tells us how important and how central the imagination is to our relationship with God. It's, 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 very, it's, it's everything. It's at the center of everything. The role of our imagination. So the passage is 2 Corinthians 3. And Paul is here contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Now listen to this. Paul says, starts with verse 5, not that we are confident of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our confidence is from God. So here, we, remember last week, we talked about the power of the cross. Uh, Paul understands that his job as an ambassador of the kingdom and the church's job as a collection of ambassadors of the kingdom is to put on display the power of the cross. 
And, and the power of the cross is the opposite of, of trusting in your own competency. And so we saw last week that Paul, he wasn't embarrassed by the fact that he wasn't wise. He wasn't eloquent. He had the thorn in the flesh. He wasn't like the flashy televangelist super apostles of his day who were, you know, going around and, and they just impressed everybody by how smooth talking they were and all the rest. That wasn't Paul. But Paul says, it's a good thing that I'm weak and that I'm not wise because otherwise the, the cross would be robbed of its power. The power of the cross, it's the distinct power of the church. It's the power of Calvary. It's the power that we're to be trusting. And it's the power of, 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 of God's love, of God's other-oriented, self-sacrificial love. The power of God to show forth his strength by entering into our weakness and to show forth his beauty by entering into our ugliness. And to show forth his wisdom by entering into our foolishness. This is what the cross is all about. The cross turns everything on its, everything on its head. It turns it all upside down. And so Paul says, our competency is in ourselves. We would never be qualified in ourselves. We're weak. We're, we're, we're foolish. But God makes us competent. That's the power of the cross. When we are weak, he is strong. And, 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 and then Paul goes on to say then that, that um, he's, he's, he's not embarrassed, but he actually brags in his weakness because that's how the cross is put on display. Then he goes on to say this, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death that's chiseled in letters on stone tablets came in glory... So that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory that's now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the letter of the law there, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. If Paul was writing this as a freshman paper and I was the professor, I'd say, stop using the word glory so many times in three sentences. <laughs> Ten times in three sentences. Glory, glory, glory. But that aside, Paul, you know, the Spirit of God uses Paul in his, in his linguistic challenges. Sometimes he gets a little bit wordy. But, but Paul's saying here, there's this. The, the, the ministry of the letter, the ministry of the law brought about death. The letter brings death. Lock that in. Letter is, is, is more of a mindset than anything else Paul's getting at. It's, it's, it's that the idea that there's something external to us that is an authority over and above us. The letter. And it kills because the letter of the law can tell us what is right and what is wrong, but it cannot empower us to do what is right and to avoid what is wrong. That's what Romans 7 is all about. The good I want to do, I can't do. And the bad I want to avoid, I can't, I can't avoid it. The law doesn't empower you. It can only condemn you. And so Paul says this. He says that the law was given to us to expose our sin, to actually increase our sin, to show us our need for a Savior. Now, it's a ministry of death because it can only point to death. It cannot give life. And yet, even though it's a ministry of death, Paul says that it has its own glory. It has a glory. You can see that because in the Old Testament, when Moses would be done communing with God, Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he would come out of the tent and his face would be glowing. It was so bright that the people had to put a veil over it. They didn't have sunglasses back in those days. So they had to, like, oh, somebody invent sunglasses. We can't look at his face. It's too bright. So they had to put a veil over it. Um, and and, and to, to turn it on, they, they, they just couldn't take it. Well, it, it, Paul says if, if the ministry of death had a glory to it, so much glory that they couldn't take it, how much more glorious will the ministry of justification be? The ministry that saves us from the law, the ministry that justifies us before God apart from the law. If the law was glorious, even though it leads to death, how much more glorious is the gospel that leads to life, praise God, is the spirit that gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit brings life. How much more glorious will it be? And then he says that the glory of the second covenant, the new covenant, outshines the glory of the first. 
Martin Luther used this analogy. He said that uh, the glory of the old covenant is like a candle that you light in the middle of a dark forest on a starless night. If that's the only light around, it, it, it looks very, very bright. Little candle. There's no other light. No other competition. But when the noonday sun comes out and all is bright, that light, that little tiny candle loses all of its significance. Because it, it, it means nothing compared to the brilliance of the noonday sun. So also, when in the darkened world, when the law was given, it was light. Uh, it, it had a little bit of truth in it. It was showing that we can't save ourselves. We can never be rightly related to a law-giving, wrathful deity. Uh, there's no, we are in need of a Savior. The law shows us that much glory. It says that left to your own devices, you are dead, you are lost, you are gone. That's light. That, that, that's, that, that shows some glory. In a darkened world, that's very bright. But then when the full gospel is revealed, when God in all of his beauty and all of his magnificence and all of his glory is revealed on Calvary, when that, when that light shines about who God really is and how God really saves and who God really is embracing, when that light shines, that little tiny light of glory that was the old covenant is dwarfed in significance. It can now be set aside. It's rendered obsolete as nothing now that we've got the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. How much more glorious is this? So it can be set aside. Now, one of the entrenched problems of humanity is that we have trouble setting things aside once we've had them for a while. Uh, we saw this last week with Peter. Um, he's got a little bit of glory. He's got the glory of the Old Covenant. And, and the, the part of the glory of the Old Covenant is that it told you what animals you can eat and what animals you can't eat, the clean and unclean distinction. We saw last week that there's a time when God really screwed up Peter's mind because Leviticus 11, read it, it tells you that if you eat these unclean animals, you are an abomination to God. It's a grave offense to eat unclean animals. You are defiled. Along comes the new covenant and Peter's on the roof and he sees this vision of the animals coming down in that sheet. I talked about it last week. And, and, and these are all unclean animals. And then he hears the voice of God saying, take them and eat them. Oh, this is going to mess Peter up, right? This is, going to, this is quite a quagmire. God says, don't eat. It's an abomination if you do. Now God says, do eat. What are you supposed to do? So Peter's all puzzled, doesn't know quite what to do. What are you going to do with all this whole thing? He has trouble setting aside. The lesser glory of the letter told you what was right and wrong. It made everything nice and clean. Told you whose side is right, you know, whose view of God is right. The letter of the law, it just delineates everything. Oh, it's so nice and secure. You're nice and happy. But now God blows it up. Blows it up sky high. So you can't lean on the letter now. What are you going to do? There's something deeper you've got to tap into, Peter. It's called following the Spirit. And sometimes following the Spirit means actually breaking the letter of the law. Think about this. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. Not one, not one jot or tittle. Not the slightest stroke of the pen will be uh, eliminated before all the law is fulfilled. So he's going to fulfill the whole law, right? But he didn't. Jesus, he says, you heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't retaliate, turn the other cheek, all the rest. That's not obeying the law. You just canceled out some of the law. On, on, on Sabbath, you play fast and loose with the Sabbath rules. You're not supposed to be eating showbread on the Sabbath, but Jesus does it. Um, he's, he, he doesn't meticulously fulfill the law. A lady touches him who's got an issue of blood. According to the law, you should check, check yourself out of the action for 24 hours. Get yourself clean before you touch anybody. Because if you touch someone after an unclean person touched you, well, you just made them unclean. So this lady touches Jesus. Jesus should have scolded her. You're not obeying the law. What's wrong with you, lady? The glory of the law. Look at the light of that. You should be adhering to that. But instead, see, there's a new light in town. It's a brighter light in town. It's the light of a trillion suns compared to a candle. Jesus is in town. So all bets are off. 
And so Jesus doesn't feel the need to say, oh, I'm unclean, I gotta go wash myself. There's a reason for it that happened back then. That was God accommodating the limitations of the people. But there comes a time when sometimes you gotta let that go to grab onto the new glory that God has for you. Peter, let go of that nice, secure glory. You, yeah, you think you have all the answers. You think you got it all together. You're, you're part of the Jewish people. You're the special people. You got it all done, don't you? Well, guess what? You don't. Deal with this contradiction. <laughs> Going by the letter, it can only get you so far. There's a point where you've got to pay attention to the Spirit. The Spirit's always pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ and our desperate need for a Savior, praise God. The glory of the new covenant outshines the glory of the old covenant. And it comes a time where you've got to let that go. Peter had trouble with that. No, I'm, I'm secure in this old glory here. I'm secure in this letter. And then Peter, uh, Paul goes on to say this, starting with verse 12. He says, since then we have this hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. It was being set aside because it's now obsolete. We got a greater glory in town. But their minds were hardened. Now, here Paul is taking this incident that happened in the Old Testament where Moses would come out of the tent and he'd have his face glowing like he just came out of Chernobyl or something. So they had to put a veil on it. All right? Uh, And now he's going to apply an analogy. And the analogy is this. What happened to Moses physically is happening to their minds spiritually. He says their minds were hardened. And so this is an analogy. Their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, he's talking about non-believers now, that same veil is still there. It's a veil over their minds. Since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read... A veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You following this? So, the primary distinction between believers and unbelievers is that believers, you've yielded to the Spirit, which is working in every human heart to try to get people to turn to God as much as possible. You yield to the Spirit, and now the blinders begin to be removed. And now you're beginning to be able to see something that you couldn't see before. The primary distinction between believers and unbelievers has to do with what believers can see in their mind. It's what we would today call our imagination. In the ancient world, they didn't have the word imagination. They would say, you see with the the eyes of your heart or the eyes of your soul or the mind's eye or something like that, but they're referring to imagination. And I want us to see how central this is. Um, Believers can see something that that the, the, the unbelievers can't see. There's a veil over the minds of unbelievers that keeps them from seeing something that God wants everybody to see. And then Paul tells us what that is, starting in verse 17. He says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit. So the Spirit of God and and Jesus, they're all one. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, everyone say it, freedom. Now the freedom he's talking about is a freedom to see. We're not blind like the unbelievers are. We've turned to the Lord. The Lord's removing the veil. So now there's a freedom. The freedom to see something we couldn't see before. And it happens in our imagination. And all of us with unveiled faces, not physically here. He's talking about our spiritual faces. The veil's been removed. Now we are seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. And as we see that glory of the Lord reflected in a mirror, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. Who is the Spirit. Let's go and read the next passage too. Three verses later, he finishes off by saying this. Go to, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. They still have a veil over their minds to keep them from seeing what God wants them to see. In their case, the God of this age, that's Satan, 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is exactly what God looks like when God is embodied. And we are able to see that in the, what the church has always called our inner sanctum, our inner sanctuary. We have an inner chapel. God created us with this inner chapel, and it's called the imagination. And, 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 and the, God, the God of this age blinds people so they can't use that chapel to see the glory of God and be transformed. But the God who said, let light shine in the darkness when he created it is also the God that said, let light shine in your heart. Let the blinders be removed. Open your eyes. See the truth. See the beauty. Inherit the glory of, of the true God who revealed his true self for us on Calvary. And so, so here Paul's saying, when the spirit of God is there is freedom, a freedom to see. And the more you see the beauty of God, the more you become that beauty. Isn't that what Paul says? As you behold the image, you become that image. From one degree of glory to another. It's what you see that determines what you become. And actually now we've got a ton of neurological evidence that shows that. That whatever you're, uh, whatever you're seeing, whatever tapes you're running in your mind, whatever soundtracks you're running in your mind, whatever images you have in your mind, that is setting the direction of your life. We've got all sorts of neurological evidence for it. But way before there was neuroscience, the Bible had it. It's, it, it's, as you, it's what you behold in your mind, in your imagination, what you're seeing that determines what you become. That's why we, we, we preach it around here like a broken record. You're, the most important fact about your existence is what is your mental picture of God? How beautiful is your mental, mental picture of God? What are you gazing at when you think about God, when you talk to God, when you listen to God? What is going on in your mind? Because what you see determines what you become. The beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. You'll love God to the degree that your picture of God is lovable. And you'll be mediocre towards God to the degree that your picture of God is mediocre. All your relationship with God is mediated through your imagination. The only God you really know is the one that you're imagining. That's why Paul says, we see as, as so a reflection in a mirror. That mirror is our imagination. And it's a reflection because our imagination is conditioned by a lot of things, some of which isn't true. So the, the image is going to be a little bit, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have smooth mirrors like we do today, which are a perfect reflection of who we are. They had to do like with cracked surfaces and imperfections or whatever. You see a reflection there, but it's not perfect. As long as we're on this side of eternity, our relationship with God is mediated through our imagination. But the Spirit uses that to transform us into the glory of the one that we're imagining. And so as I behold the beauty of God, I, I, I am transformed into that beauty. As I am just in, 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 in my imagination, as the Spirit is bringing me the, the, the wisdom of Jesus, I, I can take on his wisdom. As I see God's peace towards me, I take, become more peaceful. As I see God's joy over me, I become more joyful. As I see God's love towards me, I become more loving. All that is his by nature becomes mine by grace as I simply gaze upon his beauty. The, whole, the core to transformation is not your self-effort, not your, 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 your trying hard. It's rather doing nothing. It's resting in the presence and in the beauty of God who's coming to you through this mirror, which is called your inner chapel, your inner sanctum. It's your imagination. Uh, a lot of folks, I wonder, maybe you've been trying so hard to get your act together, trying so hard to, to, to quit this and to start this and to develop a new habit. You're working so hard at it. And that's good because change is tough. It is tough. But Maybe part of the problem is that you're just not spending enough time gazing at the beauty of Jesus. Maybe you're trying to work and trying to get through your effort what God wants to give you for free, which you just have if you would just soak in, drink in the life and the love and the beauty that God wants to pour on you by spending time just gazing in the beauty of Jesus. Enjoy Jesus enjoying you. It transforms you from the inside out. It changes you. 
So much effort. So many people treat Christianity as sort of a self-help skill, you know, try harder, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Here's 18 steps to this, that, and the other thing. And there's a lot of good tips to that. But folks, the core of transformation, it's not what you do. It's not how hard you try. It's not how much you're going to, willing to break your back. It's rather, how are you willing to invest some time sitting in the presence of Jesus and let it, enjoy him enjoying you. This is what we're going to be doing throughout eternity, folks. This is what's called the beatific vision of the church tradition. The summation, the zenith point, the goal of everything is simply for God to be enjoying us, enjoying God, enjoying us, enjoying God. It's, it's uh, we love him, loving us, loving him, loving us, loving him. It's, it's this, this, this vision where we, and, and see, someday, praise God, it won't be through a mirror, it won't through, 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 through a, 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 an imperfect mirror anymore. Uh, someday it says this in 1 John, that we shall behold him as he is, for we shall be like him. <laughs> we shall be like him. We'll see him exactly as he is, for we will now finally be transformed fully into his image. What's going on here is it's an ancient piece of wisdom, and you find it in various ways throughout the Bible, that like is known by like. Like is known by like. That's why the Bible says that too. To the uh, shrewd, uh, it, God appears twisted, but to the upright, God appears pure. Like is known by like. If there's no love in you, you'll never understand love. That's why the Pharisees couldn't understand Jesus. That's why Satan and the demons couldn't understand why Jesus came to earth. There's nothing in them that corresponds to that. Like can't know something totally alien to itself. Like is known by like. So as we come to know the true God in the person of Jesus Christ, as, as it's mediated through this mirror, our imagination, uh, we, we take on his likeness. And the more we take on his likeness, the more we can appreciate his beauty, and the more we take on his beauty, the more we can appreciate it. The greater is our capacity to take on that beauty, and the greater our capacity, the more we become like it, the more we become like it, the greater capacity. And folks, that's going to be going on throughout eternity because you can never exhaust the love of God. That's why eternity will never be boring. It's going to be an adventure, a nonstop. Gregory of Nyssa showed this, a nonstop adventure exploring the love of God. All right, so where the Lord is, there is freedom. God causes the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. Let, let there be light. And now you can see something you couldn't see before. The beauty of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, folks. So do you see how central the imagination is in all this? In the book of Acts, you know, the Holy Spirit's always telling him where to go. Go here, go there. Ah, don't go into Bithynia. I don't, want you to, don't go over Macedonia. I want you to go. And so he's always directing them. But I don't think it's because God talked differently back then than he does now, or that God had, you know, he's, he's developed some kind of speech impairment since then, or he's gone mute on us or something. No, they heard God the same way we hear God today. There's no evidence that there's a voice from the sky. When, when there's a voice from the sky, it tells us that. Like when Jesus was baptized, it says there's a voice from heaven, and everyone could hear this, although not everyone could hear it clearly because some thought it thundered, but at least they could hear something. But most of the time when there's a vision or a dream, uh, some kind of a divine communication to people in the Bible, it's not an external thing, it's an internal thing. It's an internal thing. Um, they just sensed the Holy Spirit telling them not to go there, but to go there. Or when, 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 when uh, in Acts 13, they, they're praying, and, the Holy, and they, the Holy Spirit says, set aside Paul and Barnabas. There's no indication that there was a word that everyone heard that said, set aside Paul and Barnabas. Oh, okay, Lord. No, they sensed it. Somehow they sensed it. Or, or in, in Acts 15, when James stand, stands up at the end of this big debate about how much you know, rules Gentiles should have imposed on them, James says, well, look, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose these four restrictions on Gentiles. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that God told them that in like some kind of external voice. James is saying we all just sense the Holy Spirit bringing an agreement here. So they heard the Holy Spirit in that still small voice like we talked about last week. 
God doesn't, we would like it if God would speak to us by the wind blowing apart a mountain, like we saw in 1 Kings 19, or fire coming down from the sky, or an earthquake. Well, that'd be a great answer to prayer. But that's not how God usually answers prayer. That's not how God usually talks to us. The word says that God speaks to Elijah and God speaks to us in this almost indiscernible voice, this silent voice. You can hear it, but not with ordinary ears. And you can see it, but not with ordinary eyes. It takes the ears of the heart and the eyes of the heart to see the things of the Spirit. But that's where God operates. Now, our, our trouble is this. Imagination is so central. In fact, I would say, what I found is, if you could generally break down you know, Christians into two camps, those people who like really get into worship and those who kind of don't, and those who really get into prayer and those who don't, what I found after 40 years of ministry or so is that the difference between these two groups is not necessarily that the ones who really get into it are more committed Sometimes the ones who don't really get into it are more committed because they're doing it even though they don't get anything out of it. But what I found that the, the difference between these two groups is not necessarily their spiritual maturity or anything, but this group that gets into it, they can worship all day long and they can pray and they get in. Something's going on in their mind that's not going on in the mind of the people that don't get it. The people who, who are into it, they are imagining. Their mind's going in the worship service today. I guarantee you, the ones who are into it, they were envisioning the Lord and, and, and they're envisioning the things that we're singing about. They enter, they're, they're on the inside of it. And, see, and so it moves them. They can see it. It impacts them. It's a reality to them. Their mind registers that as real. Whereas if you were here this morning and you're singing, but all that's real to you is that there's a bunch of people in a room singing and that's all that's going on in your mind, your mind would probably gravitate more towards the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl is real and interesting, whereas being in a room full of people probably isn't. Your mind will always gravitate to, to things that are more concrete because your mind is wired to pay attention to what's important and your mind is wired to, to deem what is concrete and tangible as real. What's abstract and ethereal doesn't feel real at all. So if God isn't real in your mind, if you're not imagining Jesus, if your mind isn't anchored on what you're singing about and who you're singing to, your mind will gravitate to something more interesting, like what should we have for lunch today? Or what did that person mean to, when they said, oh, you got a new haircut, was that positive or negative? Or my golly, I wonder if my boss is going to give you that new assignment tomorrow. Your mind will find something to think about that's more important than nothing. Because nothing is the most unimportant thing to think about. And if you're sitting in a room full of people just singing, that's pretty equivalent to nothing. But enter into the Spirit, see with the mind of the Spirit, hear with the ears of the Spirit, and it comes alive, and you get into it. And, 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 and see, now you want to do it. It's registered as real. It's something important. It all has to do with what's going on between your ears. We tend to view this as, it just feels weird to us to trust our imagination because we're so conditioned not to. It feels weird, like, I'm supposed to imagine Jesus in the room right now? It feels like, let's pretend Jesus is in the room. Like, we all have an imaginary friend, and his name is Jesus. It feels like child play. Let's all have an imaginary friend named Jesus. And so our brain tends to identify it as just kind of child's play, make-believe. Silliness kind of stuff. It gets filed. So then when the Lord wants to give us a word, hey, notice that lady over there. Notice that guy over there needs some help. Uh, I called up this person. They could really use it. When we hear stuff like that, well, that's just nonsense. That's just imagination. That's just our, it, it's just a, a brain burp or something. It's just odd. It, it, it's taken away from, away from our plans. We've got plans. We've got important goals to, to, to meet. And most of our day is spent. We have our plans and we fill out our plans. We're Lord of our own life. We call our own shots. God tries to get a word in otherwise because he thought he was Lord of our life. But when we hear it, we just dismiss it. Why? Because it's just our imagination. This is, I think, one of the main things that we're up against. We just dismiss this stuff. It feels like child's play. But think about this, you guys. Right now, 
Let's pretend. Let's have an imaginary friend. Imagine if Jesus was in this room. You can imagine maybe as the Spirit. Maybe like I sometimes envision like a fog, the Spirit of God here. You know, I envision it that way. Uh, or you can represent Jesus, maybe standing right there. Hi, Jesus, right here. He's, or maybe sitting next to you, or whatever. However you represent it, represent Jesus in your mind. So here's the room. Imagine Jesus being in this room. Okay, now imagine Jesus not being in this room. It's just us. Now ask yourself the question: Which of those two imaginations was more accurate? The imaginary friend one or the one without the imaginary friend? This isn't hard. This is easy. <laughs> Jesus is real. Okay, if you believe, you believe Jesus is real. So Jesus is here. So if you imagine the room with your imaginary friend Jesus in it, you're imagining it more accurately than if you're imagining the room without Jesus in it because as a matter of fact, Jesus is in it. All, all growth in the kingdom, folks, is getting our imagination to line up with what is real. That's all we're trying to do. That's all we're trying to do. Uh, we don't base our faith on our experience, but we just try to get our experience to line up with what our, our faith is. We believe it because it's true. And, 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 and so we want to bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And, uh, um, uh, and so the reality is that if you're imagining this room with your imaginary friend in it, your imagination is more accurate than if you're imagining it without. But it feels weird to us. It feels like child's play because we're not used to imagining Jesus in any room. We're used to imagining rooms as just rooms. We're secularized. We're used to imagining the world. We're used to thinking and living as though it was not true that Jesus Christ was Lord, as though God didn't exist and God doesn't want to talk to us. That's how we're used to living. We believe all this other stuff, but the narrative we tend to live in is one where that stuff doesn't apply. And that's why it feels so weird to like, be going along with 2 Corinthians 3 on our imagination. It feels like child's play. It feels like pretend, like we're just making this stuff up. As a matter of fact, and what everyone understood up until the last couple hundred years in secular Western culture is that the imagination isn't there to be child's play, to take us away from reality. It can be that. It can be entertaining fantasy, for sure. But even with children, the role of imagination is actually to bring us, bring us closer to reality, a deeper kind of reality. With children, when they make up stories, when they're doing make-believe, Ken dolls or whatever, yeah, they're making up stories. They're going away from reality in one sense, but in another sense... They're learning how to approach reality. They're learning that they are, they are people who can imagine the world different than it actually is. They're, they're exercising one of their gifts as it being in the image of God. They're practicing creativity, imagining a different kind of world, and, and, and rehearsing for adulthood. Even with children, imagination isn't just to take us away from reality. It's primarily to take us to reality. And what we've learned last 50 years especially, is that imagination is crucial to everything that human beings do. Like in science, this idea that, oh, science is dealing with facts, pure facts, empirical facts. We don't deal with imagination. That's fantasy. We deal with facts. Hogwash. Imagination's all over the place in science. Einstein, the way he writes about his theory of relativity was, was through imagination. He would envision himself at the age of 16, riding his bike home from school, racing a photon. Yeah, and here's a photon, and, and then he imagines, okay, if we're traveling at 186,000 miles per second, what would the world look like? And what the world would look like is frozen, because everything stands still if you're traveling the speed of light. Well, that's imagination. He had these thought experiments, and that's how he came upon this theory of relativity. It was all imagination. Imagination took him closer to reality, not farther from reality. It's just that imagination takes you beyond the surface appearance of reality. It takes you to the deep things of reality. It takes you to the spiritual things of reality. James Watson with the double helix DNA model. He got that in a dream. It was creativity. Imagination's all over the place in science. In fact, you can't think without using imagination. You can't have compassion without imagination. You can't be human without your imagination. It's the core of who you are. It's the core of who you are. It's all, it's all about imagination. But for us, we've been conditioned not to trust it. It takes us closer to reality. On top of that, 
there's a part of us that likes the letter. The letter represents that which is external, something objective, something solid, something that we can count on. A definitive, nice and black and white. Don't you like things nice and black and white? That's the letter. And see, throughout the history of religion, we've liked the letter. Because if we believe that we know the letter, we understand the letter, we got a grip on the letter, well now we know what is right, we know what is wrong, and now the Bible can be used to tell you what is right and what is wrong, so now here's what God thinks about you, and here's what God thinks about uh, that activity, and here's what God thinks about your lifestyle, and now the church becomes, well we weaponize the Bible by turning it into this letter, which is a billy club by which we can beat people up and feed off of our own self-righteousness. That's not what God has planned for his church, all right? That's not God's perfect goal for the church. Uh, we're not to be based on the letter of things. We're based on the spirit of God, which points us to the crucified Christ, which is always humbling us and showing us our need for, for a, a savior. When we interpret the Bible according to the letter, we weaponize it. And some of you have been at the losing end of that. I'm sure you have. That Bible becomes a lethal weapon. Here's what God thinks about you. And here's what God thinks about that. And the other thing. Maybe one of the reasons why God didn't give us a perfect Bible. I'm just, you know, we talked about the last couple of weeks. Uh, the, the, how God leaves in place the imperfections of, 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 of the humans he uses. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One showing that he's not a course of God. He's a God who respects the person of people even when he breathes through them. But on top of that, maybe one of the reasons he leaves all the imperfections there and all the loose ends there and, and things up in the air is because Precisely because he doesn't want a bunch of people who are going to use it as a letter, as an objective building club to beat people up with. We are the people who know all things. We have all the answers to all your questions. So come to us and we'll tell you what God thinks about everything. We are the God knows it all club. The holy club that's aligned with God will believe the truth. Nothing but the truth, the whole truth. So help us God. There we are. God doesn't want that. So he gives us thing with a lot of loose ends. You know, he tells Peter, hey, you know what? Guess what? There's not a clear-cut definitive on this. Yeah, I said don't, don't eat the meat back then. Now I'm saying you can eat the meat. Figure it out. <laughs> Maybe you got to think a little bit. Maybe it's not as simple as you thought. Maybe you got to wrestle with some stuff. Maybe that's part of the point. What if God, more than having us having all these definitives, is more concerned with how we work through the undefinitives? How do we work through the ambiguity? Are we loving as we process this stuff? Are we able to have a love that's greater than our differences? What if that's a higher priority for God? In fact, I'm quite sure it is. The letter is what can, it can get you all constricted, all caught up, all the questions. What about, what about, what about, what about? Here's the thing. There's a time and place for thinking about the whatabouts. There really is. I love questions. We should wrestle with questions. I, I, what happens to people who never hear the gospel? What about people who, who, you know, all these things. How can I know? How can I be sure? Fine. Talk about that. Fine. But there comes a point. As my dad used to eloquently say, you do your business or get off the blankety blank toilet. And he didn't say business, all right? Uh, there comes a point where you got to make a decision. Whatever you believe, there's a point where you got to act on something. You have to live as if something was true. You can't help it. You're going to live as if something is true. So what are you going to live as if it's true? Faith is about, there comes a point where I, I can tell you all my reasons for believing in Jesus. Historical, you know, there's some books out there that can explain it to you. I encourage you to know why do you believe in Jesus as opposed to all the other things you could believe. And then I know why I believe in the Bible, because I believe in Jesus. And so I know why I believe that there's a God who can speak, who wants to speak to me, and, and wants me to listen to him. Now, I know that I've got my reasons for thinking that. Now that I have that there, I'm now going to make a commitment, since I believe this is true, to live and to think as though that was true. That's what faith is. Believing it is one thing. I believe it's true. See, I could believe it's true, and yet I'm not on the inside of it. I could be living on inside of a very different narrative, the American narrative, maybe. I believe that's true, but the way I actually think it, the way I actually live, is living more as if the American values were the chief values. But what happens if, is if I give the word of God more authority than that? What if I come to the conclusion that, in fact, 
God is real and God wants to speak. And, and, and if I live as though that was true. See, now I'm stepping on the inside of it. That's what faith is. Faith is, I'm going to think as though this is true and I'm going to live as though this was true. And see, I guarantee you, if you start living as though it is true, that there is a God who wants to speak to you, start living in that. Remember that throughout the day. It's going to, it, you'll have to put post-it notes or whatever because changing a habit of thought is hard. and We've been secularized. We're not used to thinking this way. But live as though it is true. And I guarantee you before too long, you'll start to notice weird things like the, the, the feelings, promptings, pictures, something going on on the inside. That this, you'll just notice that. That's not, that's not the way you usually think or feel. And then I encourage you, if, if that impression, if that word, if that suggestion, that hunch, whatever it is, it, 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 if it's consistent with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary, I encourage you to step out and go with it. This is part of how we get to learn, discern God's voice. That still small voice. God wants us to seek him. He doesn't make it obvious because he wants us to seek him because part of the, he's not playing hard to get like some girl that's playing, you know, oh, I don't know, ask me harder. How bad do you want to go out with me? I've had those before. They drive me crazy. Oh, I don't know, maybe kind of sort of, either yes or no. Anyways, God's not playing a hard to get date, like, oh, seek me harder, I want you to. No, but it's our seeking him, it's our leaning into this, our trying to discern this that begins to qualify us to have the kind of heart that could hear him. He grows us in the process of leaning in, but it takes, it's not obvious. We've got to lean, on, lean in on it. And then uh, if it's consistent with the Spirit of God, operate on it. Uh, just try it out. Worst case scenario. You feel a hunch you're supposed to do something nice for this person over there or notice that person there or make a phone call, whatever. If it wasn't God, the worst case scenario is you just did something that was very Christ-like. And that's not too bad, is it? That's not the worst sin in the world. Uh, best case scenario, it was the Holy Spirit telling you to do that. You listen to it. And you'll find if you start doing this, at times at least, sometimes there'll be what I call kingdom coincidences. Where things happen where you just know that you know that this, is, this was a God thing. God was involved in this thing. I could give you 10,000 examples. I, I, this is last week. I was... Um, Going out to visit a friend who wasn't doing very good. I get in my car, I start to pull the driveway, and all of a sudden something in me says, oh, I should go get a copy of that book I just wrote, Inspired Imperfection. Now, it's not because I thought my friend was going to be interested in this, because I don't think my friend would be interested, but I just felt like I was supposed to get it for some reason. So I go over to my friend's house, and I have my book with me, and he wasn't interested in my book like I thought he wouldn't be. But he's got a friend with him who used to be a student of mine 20-some years ago, and, and she's had a pretty rocky relation with God. It's kind of been all messed up. And, and, and she heard that this friend was going to meet with me, so she wanted to come and say hi. Well, she tells me about her, her, her shipwreck of faith, and turns out it all goes back to about 20 years ago when she discovered there was errors in the Bible, and she was taught the Bible was inerrant, and so her faith got shipwrecked. I said, well, you know, I think I might have something for you. <laughs> now, that could just be a coincidence, but you know what? Since I have other reasons for thinking that there's a real God who really does want to talk with me, I, I'll, I'll chalk it up to that. I think this is a, this is a God thing. Uh, I had a thing where I was... Uh, blowing the snow uh, last week, and, and, and all, this ever happened to you where all of a sudden you're playing a conversation in your head, and you realize that something you said could have been taken very, very differently than you intended it. A week ago, it's like, all of a sudden it pops up in my head, like, they might have thought I meant that. So as soon as I get done snow blowing, I go in and I call the person, and it turns out they said, whoa, this is crazy, because I just started journaling about, about this thing that you said to me last week that hurt my feelings so deeply because I thought you meant this. And so here I'm calling up to say, well, actually, I didn't mean that. And here's what I meant to say. You see, that could have festered for weeks. And who knows how rotten that could have become if I hadn't called. The Spirit's talking to us on a day-by-day -day basis. The question is, are we listening? Will we respond? 
And sometimes it gets really cool. I've shared this before, but a couple years ago, there's a lady in our congregation who prays for all the people who come into the church here. She stands out in the gathering area, and she just blesses everyone as they're coming and blesses everyone as they're going. It's a great ministry. And once in a while, the, word, the Lord will give her a word or something or that she thinks is a word, and she'll respond to it. This one time, there's a young man here, and, and he looked kind of disheveled or whatever. She'd never seen him before. But as she's blessing him, something in her heart says, give him $20. And so she walks over to this young man and says, Sir, I, uh, I don't know anything about you. I've never seen you before, but uh, I believe God is real and God talks to us. And God just told me to give you $20. I have no idea why, but here's $20. Backstory is this guy was living out of his car. His car, he, was, he had $20 to his name. A $20 bill, that's all he had. He's sleeping out of his car. His car's almost out of gas. Hadn't been to church in 12 years, was a Christian, but walked away from God. Now he's homeless, living out of his car. He finally decides, out of desperation, to come to church. So his car's on the parking lot, almost out of gas. He's got no money except for this $20. He comes to church, and while we're taking up the offering, he feels like he's supposed to give that $20 into the offering. As an act of trust, and he fights it, and he fights it, but as the thing's coming by, he feels he has to do it, so he puts his $20 in there. 20 minutes later, he's out in the gathering area, and a lady comes back and says, here's your $20 back. Uh, and it's just, God's got you covered, dude. You passed the test, all right? Get, way to go. God's got you covered. And who knows what monumental thing that meant to that, that person. You guys, it'd be so easy to dismiss that. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, how, much, how much of the word of God do we just dismiss? Uh, look, there are people who think every thought they have is of God. Don't go there, please. And if you need medication, take medication. Honestly, because honestly, you have to have a level playing field. And there's no harm in that. There's no different than having an upset stomach. The brain is a chemical thing. And you have to have the chemical balance. In the fallen world, sometimes they're not balanced. So that's just, that's just that. That's fine. We, we just know that. But given all that, as damaged as our brains are, as imperfect as we are, as much as we screw up, God wants to talk to us and God wants to use us. And I, I want to end with, with this, this prayer. Okay, two-minute prayer. Um, and, and, and by prayer, I mean I just want to talk to God. In the presence of all of us. Let's all just talk to God and I'll just kind of lead the way here. And often when I pray, I don't close my eyes. And here's why. I think one of the biggest things we're up against is that we, we, we tend to compartmentalize the kingdom and the secular world. And, and, and so we do our secular life over here where we live as though God didn't exist, as though, you know, this is all there was. But then we take breaks from the secular realm. We go over here and, and now we're going to you know, pray and hear from God and do all religious stuff. But, but we live in these two worlds. When in fact, the kingdom, God wants to be kingdom over everything. So he wants to bring it all together. He wants to be the dome over which, the dome is to encompass everything in our life. He wants to be kingdom of everything. And so I don't close my eyes when I talk to you. So why would I close my eyes when I talk to God? Now, I'm not against closing your eyes. Sometimes I do it because it'll help me focus. But normally I just keep my eyes open because when I close them, it feels artificial. Like now I'm doing a religious thing. I, I, no, look at You're here and I'm talking to you. And Jesus is right here and I'm talking to him. Hi, Jesus. <laughs> However you represent Jesus, he's here. And so, Holy Spirit, we're going to ask you as your people, uh, will you heal our imaginations? Uh, Lord, some of us have lost touch with our imaginations. They were squashed. Somehow they were in the process of being raised. It was just squashed. It was discredited. Uh, Lord, will you recover in us that, that, that childlike wonder, that childlike imagination, seeing, seeing possibilities. Lord, heal our imagination. And Lord, help us to trust our imagination. Uh, insofar as it's trustworthy. Help us to know when we can't trust it, if there's chemical imbalances or whatever. But Lord, uh, help us to trust. Help us to hear your voice. Break the chains, the blinds, the things that keep us from hearing you, seeing you, and stepping out on you. 
Lord, wake us up. Help us to be people who are not like a, like a foot that's fallen asleep that's not connected to the head, but rather to be the hands and the feet of the body of Christ that's vibrant, that's listening, that's active, that's responsive, to be used by you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us as we are, for talking to us as we are, for using us to change the world just as we are, Lord. Continue to do your work. Free us. Help us to pay attention to what's going on on the inside and to respond so your love can flow into us and flow out to us to bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. We just stand. See, it's just, we're just talking to God. It's all natural. No, really just, Jesus, uh, God, uh, 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 my Bible says, uh, today uh, is the day of uh, salvation. Uh. Why do they talk like that? It's, you know, it's more spiritual when you have, ah, uh, God, uh, God. All right. Hey, you guys. I tell you, you know, I, I can tell you right now, I, I got a lot of reasons I could be miserable. I can, I can share that with you if you want. But I've got one reason not to be, and that overcomes all the reasons I have to be miserable. And that's that I know Jesus, huh? I know Jesus. I know he wins in the end. I know we're on the right story. We're in the right direction. I'm a happy camper, praise God. Hey, listen, if you're here this morning, could use any kind of prayer whatsoever, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, whatever, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and are not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider becoming one. Come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what that's all about. So as we leave here, can we be a people who are committed to paying attention to what's going on in our inner chapel, in our inner sanctum? As we're hearing God, we respond to God as you go out and love on your neighbors. If you're in agreement with that, say amen. amen. Go out and love your neighbors. See you next week.